All right, everybody, it's um, 6.02, so let's go ahead and get started. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Genesis 18. Genesis 18. So if you were here last week, and remember what we talked about, Last week's text, verses 1 through 15, we went through, and um, God shows up in a theophany. He, he takes on a physical representation with two angels, appears to Abraham, and he reiterates the covenant promise that he had given to him multiple times before and kind of adds to it as he does seemingly every time, or doesn't really add to it, but gives more details of what that covenant promise looks like. And this time he tells Abraham that he and his wife Sarah will have the son of promise, to which, if you remember, they both laughed last week. And we talked about how the name Isaac, which is what they were to name their son, means he laughs. They were skeptical, and we saw a couple of attributes of God on display last week. We saw that he is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. These, When you think about the attributes of God, these are the attributes that only God has. He is omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. From verse 16 to the end of the chapter 18, we see a dramatic shift in the narrative. It almost seems like two different chapters almost in the shift that we see here. Um, but verse 16 begins with then, indicative of this, these events or immediately after what we just read last week. So with that said, I guess I want to add this other comment before we read the text tonight. Um, this is a text that I, I really wrestled with to make sure that I... I understood it appropriately, that way I could share it with you appropriately. I always spend quite a bit of time in God's Word before I teach or preach, but it seemed like there was something a little extra I needed to, to study on this week. And um, that said, let me just read the text, and it may become apparent of why. Verse 16 of chapter 18. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Now Yahweh says, Shall I conceal from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have known him, so that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So God said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh God. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice. So Yahweh said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five, will you destroy the whole city because of the five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. 
And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he cried, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Let us pray. Father God, we, we approach you, as Abraham said, in dust and ashes this evening. Recognizing our own frailty, Lord, knowing that we must only and always look to you for all comfort and strength that we have. God, I ask that you be with us tonight as we share in your word and fellowship and discussion together. God, that you would give us understanding, clarity of meaning of your text, understanding that there's one, only one appropriate interpretation, God, and that is the one that is yours, and we seek to receive it this evening. God, I pray that all that we do, all that we say tonight is done so in a way that brings honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You might see, reading through that text, why I spent a little extra time wrestling with it this week. Maybe not obviously. You get down near the back bottom of it, and there's a lot of verses that sound kind of redundant and just taking some numbers away from it. But this is an extremely interesting text. I hope you find it interesting like I do. It's a very interesting text, and it must be handled appropriately, I think. We must examine two things in my mind. What is said, and what is God revealing about himself? Those are the two most important parts of this text. What is said and what is God revealing about himself? And of course, they kind of blend together anyway, right? What's being said reveals to us what God is saying about himself. So let's start in verse 16, as we always do. Not that we always start in verse 16, but we'll start at the beginning. Let's remember the setting. The oaks of Mamre and Hebron is where they're at. He says they looked towards Sodom. Now, we don't know the exact location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Somebody tries to tell you they know exactly then they, they're lying because they, they, we don't know. It's God destroyed them. Most Bible scholars, theologians, um, Jewish historians feel very confident in saying based on other indicators in Scripture that it was near the south of the sea, the, the Dead Sea, near the, near the very southern point. And keep in mind, as they look towards Sodom, they were Mamre, Hebron, in the high hills above the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley empties out right into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth, is 1,400 feet below sea level. The hill country over the Jordan Valley, where they would have been looking from, is about 3,000 feet above sea level. So we're looking at a difference of over 4,000 feet dropping down. And Molly and I got the drive that and it's pretty interesting as you're winding down to the Dead Sea, driving to this barren country, and you see these signs that'll tell you, you know, you're, you're seeing how fast you're dropping, and you drop pretty quick as you're driving down through there. Then all of a sudden you're below sea level, and you come around a, you know, it's they call it kind of a mountain, but it's more like a hill and then there's the Dead Sea. But they're looking from a point where they can see down at least in that general direction, and Sodom and Gomorrah, if it's where historians think, 25 to 35 miles away from um, Hebron. So the setting and geography set now for us all in our mind 
now it moves to the narrative to explore. Verse 17. Now Yahweh God said, Shall I conceal from Abraham what I am about to do? Shall I conceal from Abraham? Some of your translations may say, May I hide from Abraham or, or keep from Abraham or something to that nature. Who is God asking? Who is he speaking to here? Is he questioning himself? Is he asking for advice? They're there. They're there. The bigger question is this. Is he seeking a response? Or is this quite intentionally a rhetorical question? They rose up and went. You're right. So they're, they're already on their way, walking away. She got you there, Marty. <laughs> so who is he asking this question to? He's talking about Abraham, so he's not asking Abraham. That gives us some insight into whether he's looking for a response. Now, he's God. He doesn't need a response or advice or anything from anybody. Really rhetorical in that he purposes to this with a specific intent. So there's a specific intent in what he's saying here. He's about, about to reveal much more about himself to Abraham. This man who he has created, that he has chosen, that he has called, he's about to reveal more of himself to Abraham. In such a way that Abraham, the questioning, as we get to the last part of this text, the questioning that Abraham has to God, you're going to, I think maybe you might see it in a bit of a different light tonight as we go through it. Uh, because even in the questioning, God is revealing to Abraham something more about himself through the questions that Abraham is asking. That might not make sense now. Hopefully it will when we get to the, those later texts. Abraham has seen the grace of God upon him, has he not? He has seen God's grace and mercy upon him. He has been promised more of God's mercy and grace. So this child at this advanced age. Yet Sodom is about to be destroyed from God himself. and his, what is, What's going to be on display then? God's wrath and his justice. Abraham's about to see that. Now, the text also is going to lead us into this. The second part of this is Abraham is to instruct his posterity, his seed, those that come from him, about God. And so he must not just tell them... But, that's the fallacy of so, many, so much teaching and preaching today is all that anybody shares is the love of God, which is absolutely true, but his mercy and wrath and justice are removed from the pulpit. And that's a big problem. You don't get a full picture of who God is if you don't see his justice, his wrath. Abraham's instruct his posterity on who God is, and that includes his justice and his wrath, as it does his mercy and his grace. You can't separate one without, they, they're all, I've said this before, some of y'all probably may not have heard this though, that we have this issue in our mind or this problem in, we have a lot of problems in the human condition, but one of the problems is it's hard for us to be loving. I, it's hard for me to love my wife at the same time I'm extremely angry at her, right? We have to switch one of these off to switch the other one on. God is not like that. Not that I ever get angry at her. <laughs> God is perfectly just and perfect. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. One of them's God. Mm -hmm. 
two, the other two were angels. And that, you see that in, in chapter 19 when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed? That's kind of a word used. Angels appeared as men in this account. Yeah, yeah but the third one is because as they walk away, this last one's standing there, and that's actually God in some kind of human form there. Verse 18, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is still in a form of a rhetorical question. But it helps us see as God goes on of the point of he's about to make of why he is going to let tell Abraham about what he's going to do. This points to the specificity of Abraham, those who would come from his line, and eventually the nation of Israel will come from Abraham through the patriarchs. Israel was to be the witness nation, were they not? They were the nation that God had chosen and called out of all the other nations. They were the ones that were supposed to declare his glory. And they are to see the picture of who God is in totality, or not in totality, in, in the fullness in which he was to give to them at least. I've heard MacArthur say that many times that Israel was to be a witness nation. There were to be a witness nation. As he goes on in verse 19, this is the interesting place. For I have known him. Here's that word, know. That we, especially in the English language, so often mean it's to gain knowledge or something. That's not the way the word known is used in Scripture most of the time. Usually we see the word know, known, foreknown, knew. is speaking about an intimate, personal relationship. This is a picture of, of, of not gaining knowledge so much as that relationship. Amos 3, 1 through 2 reads like this. Hear this word which Yahweh has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the, whole, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you all your iniquities. He knew all, I mean, he knows everybody on the earth. He's known everybody on the earth. But this is a different usage of the word. Would it be that he, had, he chose Abraham, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Yeah. It, listen to this verse in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. You probably thought it was one of Romans 8, 29. We're going to hit that one after this one. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Paul speaking to the church of Corinth saying, I have been fully known, but I haven't fully known God yet. I've known much about him. I know him. But this is speaking of a fully knownness that God has for his children. Romans 8, 29, since y'all asked for it. Romans 8, 29, because those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's that word again. Foreknown doesn't mean foreloved. It means more foreloved than it means looking forward and gaining knowledge. God doesn't need to gain knowledge. If there was a nanosecond he didn't know something, he's not God. This is the same language of a man knowing his wife oftentimes in the Old Testament. This speaks of how intimate this knowledge and relationship is. Genesis 4.1. Now the man, speaking of Adam, knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. It's used oftentimes in that context of the marriage relationship, which again should make us think about the bride of Christ, right? That known there too. 
Continuing in 19, this verse is to be very instructive that Abraham hear about what's to happen by God himself and why. Even if he didn't see it, which he probably would, 35 miles away, whenever hellfire and brimstone start falling from the sky, it's probably going to get everybody's attention, right? But he's letting Abraham know before it was coming. Do y'all see that in this text? He's letting him know what's about to happen. He didn't want him to question it, wonder why. This is part of that relationship he has with Abraham to let him know. Now, not only to let him know, but to let him know why. Right, he said in the text we read that exceedingly wicked, 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 yes, and that this cry had gone out to him. This is why God is being very gracious here. He had no, nobody can twist God's arm to tell Abraham anything, but yet he's telling him this stuff. This is the grace of God here too. And he goes on to teach those that are his children and his household. What's he teaching them then? What is God to teach them here in what he's about to do? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah teaches, taught them what and teaches us what today and teaches everybody from then on what? He is who he says he is. What's God think about sin? What's that? I had about five of y'all talking. No, here's what. There's consequences to sin. How does he feel about sin? He abhors it. What does he say about the punishment for sin? It must be punished. And it's death, right? Yeah. All this stuff's on display in, in very dramatic fashion, I might add, of what's about to happen. And that God is just in punishing it. God is just in punishing it. Us too. Yeah. Yeah. That's also... And you get down to the, to, the, to the brass tacks of the gospel, that's why Jesus had to suffer on the cross. Because God doesn't just wipe away. We have the scripture verses that talk about it's as if we never sinned and he doesn't see him anymore, but it has to be paid for. And either Christ paid for it for you on the cross or you're going to pay for it forever in hell. It must be paid for. That's also the reason the worm never turns and it, the eternal punishment is because even in that state, man cannot pay it off. The debt cannot be paid completely off. Only Christ can do that, and he did it. Notice also the family structure here. This, is, this would make liberals' head spin. This would make much of our culture's head spin today. Abraham was to do what? What's the text say? So that he may command his children. Abraham's to be the patriarch. Even that word is a dirty word in culture today, right? Patriarch, patriarchal, let's, let's tear down the walls of that. Well, that's been the plan since the garden anyway, right? To destroy the family structure. The patriarch and head of household, this is the responsibility of no one else but for Abraham. And the head of household, he's representative of that. This is not the modern concept of giving options as to what children should choose and then letting them to decide to choose their own path. That's what's popular today, right? Well, you know, you just... He said, you're to teach them about me. You're to teach them about my justice and my wrath, but also my grace and my mercy. Because as God comes down here, grace and mercy and the promise of the covenant first, and then he shifts to the wrath and justice part that we're about to see. 
Abraham is to command and instruct. Now, when I say that you read the word command, it's a strong word, but contrary to popular belief, this can and should be done lovingly, but matter of fact at the same time. That is not always easy for us to do because we had that emotion thing I was talking about earlier where you get angry and riled up and it comes across that way when you're trying to command your child who's going the wrong way, right? But you've you got to be matter of fact about it, but you can do it lovingly too. God's about to show him why. What exactly to command and teach? What does he tell us? Keep the way of God to do righteousness and justice. Both of those are about to be on display. God's about to show that and what he's about to do. Verse 20. So Yahweh God said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Where's the outcry coming from? Who's crying out? Do we know? We know in chapter 19 how many people escape the hellfire and brimstone. How many people? Four. Four escape it. One of them's disobedient and doesn't make it all the way out of the valley. Four people. If you read that, when we read that, when we get to that text next week or the following week, it doesn't look like they're the ones crying out for what's going on. Lot's heart was troubled in the New Testament, so that's a possibility. It is possible that Lot was upset, but he stayed in the middle of it. But he could have had, and we know what he's about to do with his daughters when we get to chapter nineteen too, right? Of he understood the the unrighteousness going on there. Go ahead. What you got, Diane? That's all. Just thought that was an option. Yeah, Marty. So it, it, it's, it's an option, yeah. It, it is an option. I, I found this interesting, too. I, I look to see, when I find one of these words that I really want to get to the... So I look for the word of. You see, the, the outcry in, in Legacy Standard, in the New American Standard, and in the King James Version, it says the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. That the cry is coming from there. In King, New King James, in the ESV... If you have another translation, I didn't look those up, so I'm sorry. I just looked up five, not any more than that. Those other two translations, it says against. It says that the cry was against Sodom and Gomorrah, where the other three translations say, oh. So I looked, I was like, well, okay, what does that word mean in the original language? Let's get to the bottom of this. It's not listed in the original languages. It's one of those words that was added by scribes to make the sentence structure flow better. You see that sometimes in scripture. It doesn't add, change the context. So it appears to be before that to help in the reading of, the, of it itself. The point being this, where or when did this outcry come from? We've mentioned one option, Lot. So then I was like, okay, well, what does the word outcry itself mean? We think we know what it means, but let's see what the original text means. It's a legal judicial term. It's connected to typically to someone crying out for justice. This isn't just a cry that something's not right here. We can do that all day long, right? We can say this isn't right. This is actually a cry for justice. Do something. We would need something done about this. The same word is in, used in Genesis 4.10. Y'all know what happens in Genesis 4, right? Cain and Abel. After Cain slow, uh, kills Abel. God comes, verse 10, and says this. And he, God, said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's not... The blood is crying out. So what's crying out in Sodom and Gomorrah? 
We know that creation groans, right? I mean, it could be light. It could be... We, we don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to say this, this is exactly who or what it was. Could have been. He, he had a personal interest there, right? Yeah, and that plays a big part, and I think that's bartering he's about to try to do with God, too. And he had been there, remember, just a couple of chapters before when Lot was taken captive and the other people were taken captive, and Lot went north to battle these kings, and he brought Lot and all the people back from Sodom and presented them to the king. So he's familiar with that area. That's something else I thought about, Marty. I'm thinking about also the the people that were killed while they were doing it, crying out for for some kind of vindication of why is this happening. I mean, we could we could debate this all night long and never nail down because God doesn't tell us specifically, right? We don't want to try to add to the text. I thought it was interesting though, as I read through it. I think it's interesting too, like I said, that it's not just a cry that something's not right. It's actually a cry for justice. Yeah. His, his very nature perceives injustice. Uh, Exodus 3 7. And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. So in the same sentence, same text, he's saying, I hear, but I know. That's God, right? He hears and he knows. We'll see in the next chapter, only Lot and three make it out, like I said. We already knew it was a sinful place, though, right? This isn't our first introduction to how sinful Sodom is. In Genesis 13, 13, Now the men of Sodom were evil and sinners exceedingly so, comma, against God. They were bad against their fellow man, but they were sinning. Now we understand every sin is against God. 1313 shows us their wickedness exceeded so much against God. Again, our culture today is, just keeps coming to my mind. Um, God's already revealed to Abraham he knows all things. This persistent wickedness, kind of this could what Diane was thinking or saying, I believe, raises an actual outcry to God. Verse 21. And I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. This is one of those interesting texts where you have, I'm going to throw out some big words, anthropopathism, anthropomorphism, where you have these, God uses this, these, this language and these words to speak to things so that we can better understand them. Did God have to go to Sodom to understand or know anything that was going on? No. He's using this language from an understanding perspective for, for the relational aspect with Abraham to help him kind of try to wrap his mind around it a little bit. I'll use those big words, and I didn't tell you what they mean. I've said it before. And anthropomorphism is when God speaks about human actions to describe something he's doing in a way we can understand. Like when it says God turned his eye to this, or God put his hand on that, or God stretched out his finger. That's an anthropomorphism. I mean, he's using physical representations of a human that we can kind of understand what he's doing. And anthropopathism is the same thing, but it's when God speaks about these feelings or these attitudes in a way that we can understand. Because God's ways are higher than ours, right? The way he thinks and all these things are different than how we do. Did the person of 
God that was standing there talking to Abram actually end up going to Sodom? This verse, chapter 19 does not, t- it talks about the two. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I just wonder if he actually went down and, you know, walked It doesn't, chapter 19 doesn't tell us that he did. Would you know that? No, she knows. I mean, I think you just, if it's somewhere else in scripture, but. The other thing, I didn't think too deeply on that, but it does make me think of something now. The word for angel is what? Angelos. What does that mean? Messenger. Angels are messengers of God. For them to go down there is just as good because they're his messenger. They're his emissary of going down. But again, he already knew anyway. That's what makes this whole bartering really, really interesting to look at here in just a minute. You got something? Shall I conceal from Abraham what I am about to do? Either way, it's talking about either a present tense or a present future tense, right? That he's gonna, that he's gonna do it. He's saying, "I'm gonna do it." Then we have that interesting barter conversation that's about to happen. No, that's fine. So here, God's going a step further than hearing. He's about to lay out justice. Now, it made me think about other times God has come down up to this point. A couple of them that jump out at me is at the Garden of Eden, right? And what does he come down then? He comes down and told them about the curse. He, 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 there's a, a form of justice on display, but there's also a form of grace there and mercy as he, you've not called it before, he kills, God kills the first animal. He made the first sacrifice. The first physical death on earth, God did it to an animal to cover Adam and Eve. He covered their nakedness. Remember, they tried to cover it up with these little fig leaves that and God killed an animal and covered them. It doesn't tell us he killed an animal, but it says God covered them in the hides of animals. Two and two together make you realize pretty quick who killed the animal. Genesis 11, what happens there? Tower of Babel. Does God come down to see what these men were doing? He knew what they were doing, but it speaks about him coming down. And we have it here. This is... So why... Do we see that? What, what does that speak to us? To me, as I think about it, it really speaks to the personal connection to justice and dealing with sin and sinners. Daddy comes and opens the door. You know you're in trouble. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Billy. That's a good Heatman County way and North Georgia way to put it right there. Yeah. I'm in trouble. Yeah. Daddy's here. Yeah. Yeah, and he's going to deal with it personally, right? He's going to deal with it personally. I'll, I'll put that in my next sermon notes next time I teach, preach on that. Even in the incarnation, when God took on human flesh, when Christ came into the world incarnate, he came in grace and mercy and love and compassion, but he came marching to the cross the whole time he was on this earth to take on the wrath and fury of a holy God for those that he's going to call to himself. In this text, he's using human language for Abraham's benefit to lay out he is gracious and merciful, but he is also judge. You know, pulpits are so scared, or even teaching classes are so scared to lay that part out about God, but that's just as true about God as his love. That's a good point, Diane. It's not. It's not. For that matter, justice, our idea of justice isn't 
we might get that a little bit better, but we really don't because our even our justice is is wrapped around our emotion and and um, being wronged and all these other things. God's being wrong, but His justice is perfect. It doesn't have all these other influences, and He's also judge. He's not going to gain knowledge that's impossible for God. Don't let that permeate your thoughts in any way, shape, or form. God doesn't learn anything because He's perfect. To learn something would make mean he learned something would make him a little bit better, right? If you gain knowledge, you become better at whatever. God can't become better because he's perfect. Verse 22. Then the men turned away from there. This is speaking of the angels. We see that in chapter 19. And went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh God. So they did. They leave. I know back in the earlier verse it says they're leaving them, but it... it I guess maybe they've gone out of sight now. I'm not sure, but but they're they're finally gone, leaving Abraham and God alone. Verse 23. Then Abraham came near and said, "Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked?" When I think about that verse, and I think about the closeness of the relationship God had with Abraham, there he came near to God. What happens in the scripture when people see angels, not even God, angels? Now, when they first saw him earlier in this chapter, remember he runs up and falls on his face. He, that does happen. But we read other places in scripture where, where angels make people freeze in fear, fall on their face. He bowed rather than fell. He wasn't like John, you know, on Patmos. It was more like a you know, deathless thing. It was intentional rather than like... You're right. So I think it might not be quite as scary as some of the... Yeah, we don't, it doesn't seem like there was fear in the first part of this. He came near. This feels very much like a courtroom setting now, too, though, with what's about to happen. Be good night for Roy to be here, our, our lawyer, but every night's a good night for Roy to be here, though, so don't tell him I said he's only good whenever we're talking about law stuff. Abraham seems to be somewhat of a defense attorney about what's about to go on here. God, the interesting thing about God is what? He's prosecutor. But he's also judge. And he's just in both those offices because he's God. No human would be just in both those offices. Let's look at the verse. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Wow. What a question to ask God. What's Abraham's purpose in this question? There's a personal connection he's got. And if we go back to when we were studying about Lot, remember, he's the son of Abraham's brother. Abraham's brother died young. He raised Lot. Lot was his nephew, but he was almost more like a son, really. Yeah. He, and he follows him until they separate. And he goes down to the bad place. Um, but there's also something here in addition to the personal aspect, it's an appeal to God's character. This is an appeal to God's character to God. You're just. You're you're righteous. Surely you won't do this, will you? Yeah, that's a different. Yeah. How could God destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now again. Abraham's idea of righteousness is not the same as what God's idea of righteousness is either, right? Scripture tells us elsewhere, none are righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God. 
He's not, catch this too though, he's not appealing for the wicked to not be punished. You don't see that anywhere in this. Abraham at no time says, God, don't destroy the wicked. He never says that. He understands how wicked they were and that God should destroy them. That's important. This is intercessory type language we haven't seen before of appealing on behalf of someone else. You've probably all prayed as an intercessor for someone. We're seeing that kind of in this, this aspect right here too. What's that again? This may be showing the character of Abraham and, and his, his care for righteous people who are going to be destroyed. I think so too. I think it's showing us a lot about Abraham here. And I think purposely God is doing this to pull it out of Abraham to show it to himself too. Just like I've said before, God, when, he, when our faith is tested, God knows where our faith is. It's for our benefit to see where it is though. And I think he's doing the same thing with Abraham here. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It does, however, raise a larger question. And this may be in your mind if we think about what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And I don't want to go too far down this path, but when we think about collective guilt, because you've got the bad side of it too, right, of this, this, the oppressed and oppressor state and, and critical theory and all that kind of thing. Guilt by association might be a way that we better put it. Is that a real thing? Is that a real construct? Is that a real societal thing? Is there guilt by association? I'm reading through Joshua right now. If you haven't read through Joshua in a while, I would encourage you to do it. We know the story of Jericho, march around the city seven times, the walls fall down. Do we remember what God told them to do when they go into Jericho? Kill everything. Everyone except for Rahab and all those in her household. He often had children. He, he doesn't say children specifically, but what he says is kill men, women, young, and old. Saying the same thing. They go to Ai. Ai routes them, right, because of the, the sin of Achan. Ai routes them, but then they come back and they take them. He says the same thing to them then. I don't want to get into some big discussion about that, but it's consistent. there's a consistency there. Why do you, I'm running a real risk of taking a rabbit trail, but I think it's important to touch on it just for a second. Why did God tell him to do that? In those situations and other, many, many others. Contamination. Contamination. What do you mean by that, Billy? Sin. Contamination of sin. Okay. Let me take it out. I don't like to do this often. Let me take it out of the theological realm for just a moment and think from the, the practical military mindset from my prior military time and from just a study of a student of history. What happens when they go into these wicked places and they wipe out everyone, but they leave a generation? What's going to happen 20 years from now? They're going to be fighting your children. My children are going to be fighting them again 20 years from now. We see the produce of what now today in Israel with the way it's right now with uh, Hamas. Yeah. They're the same people. They should have been destroyed way back 
And in Joshua, it mentions Gaza too, by the way. Now, the other aspect of that is, for what's going on currently, the warning sirens went off and they were told, go. Many, many times. But anyway, let's, let's, let's get back on course. I think it's important for the text of where we're at to think about for a moment, though. Um, where was I? The collective guilt thing. We kind of talked about that. Should an entire community suffer because of some of its members? Billy kind of talked about the contamination aspect. Y'all probably all heard, said, or your mama or your granddaddy told you, or somebody told you, uh, a rotten apple will ruin the whole bushel, right? Now, in this case, though, the vast majority is extremely wicked, in Sodom's case, at least. That whole bushel, <laughs> bushel was rotten, yeah. Yeah. Remember in Genesis 14, I mentioned it a minute ago. Um, I'll, I'll read couple of these texts. At the very end, he brings Lot back. He brings back a lot of people that were taken captive in Sodom. The king of Sodom, verse 22, 14, 22, says this. Then Abraham said to the king of Sodom, after Sodom, the king had already said, give me the people, I'll give you all these things. I'll give you all these possessions, Abraham. Abraham says this. I have raised my hand to Yahweh God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours so that you would not say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkal, and Mamre, let them take their share. Abraham wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom. Now that could, he tells us part of the reason why, right? He didn't want him to hold some kind of, you owe me something. But also, he don't think he wanted to take anything from the wicked bushel either. Back to our primary text here, verse 24. Here's where the bartering starts. Suppose there are 50 righteous, this is Abraham speaking to God now, within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? This is intercession, guys. This is, this is God, if there's somebody righteous there. Now, again, in the back of his mind, Lot's got to be there. He has to be. He loves Lot and his family. Verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth do justice. Now, is this an indictment against God? Is Abraham trying to say, often it's interpreted that way. I don't think it's an indictment against God at all. I don't think he's trying to call God to task on something here. Does not David pray this way sometimes in the Psalms? He would pray of, God, remember your promise. God doesn't need to be reminded of his promise. David needs to be reminded of the promise, and he prays in that way, though. Well, you may do the same thing sometimes in your prayers. God, you've promised this. But there's also, I think, a bit of a concern for God's reputation here, too, for Abraham. I think he's kind of worried about what people think about his God, think about God. Uh, I would say the converse is true here. Surely you won't judge the righteous and the wicked together just as the wicked aren't to inherit the good promises as well. I think there's a converse laid in there, not the shoe. He's still also driving to know God more and better. In this relational aspect, as you were saved, you probably had this fire in you immediately to want to know more about this God who saved you. And it drove you to his word and it drove you to prayer. And you may have had these lulls in your Christian walk. 
Let me back up. You have had these lulls in your Christian walk. When you want to know God better, when you want to know about this God who has saved you, how do you come to know God better? You go to his word. What has God revealed about himself in the person of Jesus and in the entirety of his written word? I think Abraham was still wanting to know God more and know more about him too. This comment slash question is intercessory, but I think it's also a desire to know the Lord even more. God, this isn't who you are, is it? That it catches Abraham off guard that God's going to do this, or that he knows God is righteous. Yeah. And won't do these things. Do you think it's more? I think he's just stating it in a way that this is who you are. That's fine. Yeah. You know, no, I see what you're saying. Well, in this part, the bargaining act concept is there a message for us here about God? What way are you thinking? In his judgment, he's both just and justifier. He can, whatever he does here for us, we see that he is holy and righteous. Yeah. And that he's just in whichever way, whatever. Now that's good. That's good. Verse 26. So Yahweh God said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. God knew. <laughs> All right. God knew. He knows the exact number. He knows exactly what's going on there. He, Or might even better say, he knows the lack thereof, the 50 that are there. But he's not also destroying the fact that Abraham to pray for those, uh, his compassion. You know what I mean? He could, he could very easily have said it bluntly, there's none there. But there's this fostering attitude of Abraham's compassion and showing it to himself of how compassionate he is too. He did stop at 10. I got, I got, some, I got a thought on that too. May not be right, but I've got a thought on it. Did you also catch, did God say he would just say the 50 that he finds that is righteous? He said he saved the whole place. Again, God's not about to go find something that's going to change his plan. Remember in the early part of this, he said he's going to do this? That was going to happen. So this is indicative of the influence of godly people and culture, I think, on display too. The display of godly people and culture. Being salt and life, like Matthew 5, 13, 14, you know, you are salt of the earth. Those kind of texts. You're the light of the world. There's an influence. Do y'all understand that? I mean, we could get into another rabbit trail about the rapture and how how's the world going to get as crazy as we read about and all this stuff and when the rapture is going to take place and all that. But we can easily, I think, if you look at cultures around the world where there has been a Christian influence on the culture, there's been a preserving influence on the culture also. And the less and less that there's a Christian influence in the culture, the culture unravels quickly. Really quickly. That's a whole other sermon topic. Probably a sermon series on that, to be honest. I mean, God's people in community, even in a local community, much less a, you know, a nation, in a local community, the openness of the wound of sin used to be revealed, right? Because salt burns. People were kind of dismissive of that now, right? I mean, at one time, people, if they saw you walking by and you're a Christian and they were saying a dirty joke, they might stop until you walk by and then go ahead and tell it. They don't do that anymore. They just go ahead and say it. 
It also acts as an antiseptic of sorts too, though, does it not? Salt does, especially in the ancient world, a pres preserving agent. I mean, you still probably like, if you're like me, I like them too much, but like a salt cured ham, you know, I, I like that. It kind of, but anyway, verse 27. And Abraham answered and said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. He's understanding he is, he trusts God, but he understands, I really don't have a right to even say this to you, God. I'm just dust and ashes. But yet he's compelled to anyway. In Jesus, we come boldly to the throne of God, but we must still remember that we're but dust and ashes. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can approach his throne boldly because of the Lord but yet we're dust and ashes. Yet, as we approach his throne, we're still to remember who we are and who he is. He's not, y'all seen some of these crazy translations they're trying to get the, the newer generations in with the way they use these cool slang terms for God and for Jesus and all this stuff. It's some pretty heretical stuff out there. Calling him the big J and all this kind of stuff. And you still approach God in reverence whether you've been just saved or you've been a saint for 80 years, you approach God with reverence. That's who he is. And if you're his, you will. You will, you will understand that. We'll all show up to hear the Bible study tonight again. Something up there. Let's look at verse 28 29. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 40, uh, 29. Then he spoke to him again, him yet again, and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Now, why does Abraham keep going lower with the number? He knows how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah is, right? He, if I keep lowering it, maybe God will, you know. Do we think that he thought God was going to relent? I didn't put this in my notes. It just hit me. Do we think at any point that he thought God was actually not going to destroy it? Yeah, yeah. Now, if she was going home with mom, if you were taking her home to mama, would you let her have? I think a lot of it has to do with that. Yeah. You know, I would be like, how, how can he live there? Right. I mean, could he have been, without asking, you know, is Lot going to be saved? But he didn't, he was almost afraid of the answer. Maybe it might look too selfish that he's doing it that way. Yeah. yeah like, you know. Scared of the answer. So yeah. Or scared of the answer, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I just. That's a good thought. I don't think it's a weird thought at all. I don't think it's a weird thought at all. I don't know that I can answer you. From, Lot, 
That's kind of what my thoughts are going to be when we get there, actually. It actually is. Yeah, we're, we're about to get right there, and I, I got a similar feeling there. Let's look at verse 30 and 31. Then he, Abraham, said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak, suppose 30 are found there. And he, meaning God, said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Verse 31, And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. He knows he is really <laughs> going out there now. Suppose 20 are found there. And he, meaning God, said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Don't be angry, he's asking God. He understands his position. I have no right to ask you this, God. But what if there's 20? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? Verse 32. Then he, Abraham, said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. Finally arriving at 10. Finally saying, God, I'm done. Let me ask this once, one more time almost. What if there's 10? God had kept telling him, if there's this many, if there's this many, if there's this many. So he finally gets all the way down to 10. I think it's kind of what you're saying there. Okay, if you know what's coming, Abraham didn't know exactly what we know, of course. You had Abraham, I'm sorry, you had Lot and his wife, two daughters, two sons. Both the daughters were engaged to be married. That's eight people. If I can get it to that number, God, if you, you know, if it's if it's ten or less, then they fall into that category of surely it's Lot and his family. But again, not really quite. He's pretty bold, but he doesn't seem to be quite bold enough to say, "What about Lot?" This number of ten indicates he understood also the wickedness of the city. There may not even be ten there, God. And was hoping to at least spare Lot and his family, I think. Ultimately, as we've already said, four are spared. One of them doesn't make it out of the valley. She turns around in disobedience and turns into a pillar of salt. Verse 33. And as soon as he, God, had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed, and Abraham returned to his place. The scene's over. The, the, the courtroom is closed. He has said his peace. He's not demanded. I mean, this is the last thing I'm going to say, God. God departs, and Abraham goes back to his tent. Thoughts? Why is God even, even allowing Abraham to barter with him? When he, when he told Noah to build the ark, and he was going to destroy everything, there was no... With yeah, there wasn't. And, and, and God was going to destroy it. That was already a given. Yeah, he said it before he ever started bartering. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think part of it is what we said when it's, it's kind of showing Abraham. It's pulling some of this stuff out of Abraham, too, of who he is. And God's revealing to him who he is, too. I think there's some revelation going on here. He is the product of the promise of what's to come, too. And he talks about knowing him. And he knew Noah, too. I mean, Noah was part of that plan to begin with also, right? 
I can't give you a solid answer except that I think it has much to do about the relational aspect here. This is a much more deep, detailed, intimate relationship we, we are revealed with Abraham and God than there was with Noah. Now, God spoke to Noah, right? And he told him what to do and preserved him and his family. This is something even more um, intimate to me. And there's revelation here going on of who God is and who, who Abraham is because, like you said, he already told him he's going to do it. He didn't say, I'm going to do this unless you can talk me out of it, which we know would be an impossibility anyway, but, yeah, Marty? And you notice back in Noah's account, there's only one, one verse Noah actually speaks. Yep. The whole story. And Abraham is a having a conversation. Had a major conversation, so, you know, because he, uh, after the flood, the they uh, covered him up, or his brothers covered him up, and the mother made fun of him. That is the only person ever 